welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. For more information about our faith community, feel free to visit gatewaychurch.org.nz. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy this message. As I said, welcome. Great to have you with us. Last week, we, we began a short series entitled Our Christian Hope to examine on what this is based, or should I say, on whom it is based. And we turned our attention to Jesus. We, we had a look at the fact is that for many, it seems, uh, looking pastorally across the congregation, is, it seems to be a season, if I can say this, of incredible hopelessness for people at this season in time. It seems as if challenge after challenge, difficulty after difficulty seems to be the lot for, for many. And we, we took the opportunity to start to look at Jesus, and I posed the question, had we perhaps over the last decade in the church of Jesus Christ concentrate, concentrated too much on his humanity, and we had forgotten something of the supremacy of who he is, that he was, whilst he was here on earth, he was both God and that he was both man. And last week I took the opportunity to start to unpack and to unravel the first century worldview which the gospel writers were speaking into and to see what they were saying if we would have been there with them. And ask the question, does the gospel still work today? For many people in difficult situations, that is a very real and poignant question. Does the gospel still work? And of course, we say that it does. But we also looked at our, our thing, this thing called hope, this Christian hope that we have that is mentioned 180 times in the word of God, just over 180. And we saw that faith and hope go together, that hope is a precursor for faith, that we have faith that we believe that God will do something, but hope comes into our life and that we start to believe and imagine that God can do far more than we can imagine or hope for, that as we have hope or if we don't have hope, it impacts our life. And as Edwin McManus says in his book, if you don't believe that you have a future worth living for, your spirit loses all hope, and your soul wasn't designed to live without hope. In fact, when we lose all hope, we lose all desire to live. So we turned our attention to Jesus, and my aim last week, as it is this week, that when you leave here this morning, you will be a little bit more impressed with Jesus than when you came in. And we began to explore, especially some of the stories in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that who are writing to a first century readership to mess with their minds. He was starting to mess, they were starting to mess with their worldview and to unveil who Jesus was in a different and incredible way. And today, we, we move on in time to the temptations of Jesus. The last week, it was crucial that we got some idea, some insight into who Jesus was before he came head to head with the devil. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, these two events follow each other. They are closely connected. They are there for, an important, uh, for a reason. Jesus had just been baptized. He had had the applause of the Father. The heavens had been torn asunder. The Holy Spirit had come and said, we're all in this together. And now we move on to the, tempta- uh, to the temptations. But the question I want to ask us at the very beginning is, why are we being told this story? Is it because we, we learn that Jesus can beat the devil? Well, yes, in part it is. Is it so that we can learn something of the strategy of how the devil moves? 
It is in part. But I believe there's a lot more. So let's read the passage from Luke. And it says, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you I will give all this authority and their glory for it has been delivered to me and I will give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will always be yours. And Jesus answered, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you, lest you strike your foot against the stone. And Jesus answered him, it is said, you should not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Here's my point. I don't want you or any of us to think for one moment that Jesus found this confrontation a struggle, that these events did not for one moment destabilize Jesus at all. Jesus was not reluctant to go into the desert and had to be persuaded somehow by the Holy Spirit to go, go on Jesus, you can do it, I'm with you, we'll get through these 40 days, it'll be really tough. Utter and complete nonsense. This is not the superior Holy Spirit leading the inferior son into the desert and saying, Jesus, this is where you have to go. Not for one second did Jesus worry about this confrontation. The, le the reader is learning that the Holy Spirit and the Son are together, that the Godhead is there and they are one. They are un unpacking to first century readers who this Jesus is. They are in this together. The devil may have thought that he was in for a knockout blow. He may have thought, well, I have now got Jesus. But he was soon to realize that this was not an ordinary man, but this was God incarnate. This was God-man. It is important that we get an insight into what it was like in the first century Palestine in regards to their thinking around demons and the desert and the wilderness. They believed that demons lived in the wilderness. They believed that they lived in the desert. They believed that they lived in arid and dry places. It went, as it were, with their personality. They inhabited those places because they were safe. And here is the devil, as it were, confronting Jesus in the wilderness. Jesus, in the first century mindset, is going onto the enemy's own territory. And if we can put it like this, the reader was thinking, wow, not only is Jesus taking on Satan himself, Satan has got home ground advantage. This is what the reader is hearing here. And Satan's thinking, I've got him. Jesus is mine. If you remember the story of the Gadarene demoniac, he's in the tombs, another area that the first century people thought that the demonic lived. If you remember, when Jesus dealt with the demons on this occasion, he responds to their request and sends them into the pigs. 
Have you ever thought why Jesus agreed to their request? Why did, he, why did Jesus agree to send these dirty demons into the pigs? You may think that I'm being quite abusive and using f- harsh language by saying these dirty demons, but I sometimes think that when we call them unclean spirits, we are sanitizing them. We are making them politically, as it were, correct. The Greek word in, uh, for the word demon is akathanos, and it means lewd, depraved, an abomination, dirty, and foul. So Jesus is being asked by these foul beings, can they go into the pigs? And Jesus acquiesced to their suggestion, not because he thinks it's a good idea. Jesus has done a, done a miracle with a gathering demoniac, and he's about to do another side miracle. He's about to do something that is as profound as the release that he has brought to the gathering demoniac. He sees, he knows that when he sends the demons into the pigs, something is going to happen. He gives the command and they enter the pigs, something happens and these poor pigs fly off the edge. And before they hit the water, the Jewish reader in their mind in the first century Palestine realizes that something incredibly important is happening. It's not that the pigs will drown. I don't know if pigs can swim. It's not that they will drown. It is that the demons will be extinguished and defeated forever. Because demons, you see, they love, in the mindset, aridity and barrenness. They hate water. And Jesus takes this first century worldview and does a miracle on the side to say, not only am I setting this man free, but I'm also dealing with these demons and this demonic force forever and ever. And as every single pig hits the water and splash, Splash is heard a thousand times. The immediate thing that comes to the reader and to the listener is, these demons are gone forever. They are not coming back. Friends, we will never have to deal with those demonic forces again in our lifetime. Wherever they go, they have been sent there. And the mindset of the first century is reading, wow, they love aridity, now they're going into the water. This is done forever. Jesus takes the first century mindset and starts to mess with it. So back to our readers with their worldview. And now Jesus is coming into the wilderness to meet the arch enemy. Maybe they were a little bit worried. Maybe the reader was a little bit worried because is Jesus going to be okay? We've, we know what we've heard at the baptism. We know that we've just read that. But what's going to happen here? If I can say it, how ridiculous. For 40, day, 40, for 40 days, Jesus has been in fellowship with the Holy Spirit. And do not begin for one, to think for one second that he is at his weakest. He is not fragile. He is hungry, yes, but he is powerfully strong. He has been in communion for 40 days, as it were, with the Spirit, and here he is. This is an unfair match from the very outset. Friends, do not think for one second that anything than this was a, tra- a trap set by God. He is about to spring it, and the Satan is the prey. This was never, ever in doubt from the outset. And then we have the three temptations, which Matthew, Mark, and Luke record for us. And we see how Jesus functions with ease and composure and authority. He just does it so easily. 
The devil tempts him and he flicks back a Bible verse. The de devil does it again, he flicks back another Bible verse. So the Satan, so, so the devil, he's not stupid, he's pretty smart. So this time he tries to play Jesus at his own game. And he gets a Bible verse and he tempts him with it. It's wrong, but it's a good attempt. And Jesus replies with another verse, but embedded in these words are the words, you should not tempt the Lord your God. The reader would be absolutely amazed by what they had just read. Because Jesus, are you saying that you're God? We thought that you were just the boy from Nazareth. We thought that you were special. We thought you were all these things. They are hearing clearly, unequivocally, that Jesus is saying, do not for one second doubt that I am the Lord God. And Satan is defeated and Satan skulks off. Jesus was declaring who he was at the point when he was probably thought that he could, they, the people around him thought he could have been at his most vulnerable. Matthew and Mark then pick up the story and they record Jesus being ministered to by the angels. And that is what most translations say. If you've got in your Bible, it says that they were ministered to. I have to say that's a pretty inaccurate translation. It gives the implication that they were there to, are you okay, Jesus? Can we soothe your brow? Can we just get you a glass of water? Or can we get you something? Can we help you through this? Man, you must be absolutely wrecked after these 40 days. How on earth did you manage? Gosh, we are so pleased that we can be here to help you. Completely inappropriate. Completely wrong. The Greek word here is the word, excuse me, that we get to serve. That you get the word to serve. Diakonia, diakonos, deacon. The angels, it says, came not to minister to him, but to serve Jesus. Totally different. What they were doing at the end of those 40 days was exactly the same as they had been doing in eternity since the foundation of time. There in the wilderness, they were serving him. They were there with Jesus. They were serving the Godhead. They were just doing what they forever were doing. See, what the writers have done is to take this private occasion, which Jesus must have told them about and said, we want the rest of the world to know about this. For here at the start of his ministry, he has the applause of heaven, he takes on the arch enemy, he defeats them, and it's as if God is through these writers saying, please, please, at the very outset, realize who this incredible person is. Realize who your hope is in. This is my son who has come from heaven into your midst. And he has lived a sinless life and he's defeated the enemy already. There is another battle to come. But this is the awesomeness of who Jesus is. I love the little addition that only Mark tells us about. And it's Mark 1.13. And it says, and he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he, was, and he was with the wild animals. And the angels were ministering to him. I, I love that. You know, poor Jesus. Poor Jesus, he'd had 40 days, now he's got the wild, wild animals. You know, I, mean, I got a picture of him scrambling up to the highest point, getting some stones and getting, please forgive the imperial, but getting a four by two and just saying, you come near me and I'm gonna smack you. Poor Jesus, all these wild animals there. Friends, Mark, the writer, has such limited space to tell about the history-altering life of Jesus Christ. 
So why on earth does he bother mentioning, mentioning that after 40 days in the wilderness that Jesus has company of the wild animals? I'd like to suggest this to you. They're not wild to him. They're not wild to him. They're wild to Mark. Jesus made them. He is their creator. If I can be a bit corny, they are pussycats to him. They would be there as company. They would be there around at his feet. He probably had a lot of good time with them. They're not wild to him, and they did not recognize him as an enemy. They recognized him as the, the creator God. No need to be scared. They're only wild to us, not to, not to him. He's got company. The picture that Mark is presenting for those who have eyes to see and ears to hear is of a Jesus who, whilst here on earth, functions in his role as a creator, who has the applause of heaven, who deals with the enemy and copes with everything around him. And the people are slowly coming to the realization of who this Jesus is. The question for us, in the light of the the years that perhaps throughout the church, we have stressed the humanity of Jesus. The question is, do we realize ourselves who he is and how awesome he is and how powerful he is, that he above all is our hope. Before we bring this look at Jesus to some conclusion, I just want to quickly look at some of the healings of Jesus, just to give us some more insight into who he is again. When Jesus healed, he did not do it to demonstrate that he was the best healer and that he was the second to none. There is something far more important and significant about the healings other than the people that he healed. There is, the healings are there to tell us something else. His healings were unbelievable, and everyone that came to him was healed, and they were healed instantaneously. No one had ever done that before. You see, lots of things we could say about the healings, but one thing they do is that they point to who he is, both man and almighty God. In other words, when Jesus heals, he shouldn't be doing it because In the first century mindset, only God heals. The message that the reader and the people of first century Palestine is not that he is a wonderful miracle maker, but that he is God. And don't forget, as I said last week, these guys, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they are writing sermons. They are not just, this was a miracle, this was a miracle, another miracle, another healing, let's just get through all this. This is not a historical record. They are preaching to you about Jesus, and in preaching, they are giving you insight through everything that is happening to tell us how incredible this person, Jesus, is. So a couple of things that the writers tell us in order to present this information. First of all, Jesus never prayed for people. He never prays for people. He never asks God for help, doesn't ask him for his advice, he doesn't ask him what to do, he just does it. He usually just announces healing, and if he wasn't Jesus, or if he wasn't God, I should say, he would be incredibly presumptuous, say the fact that it works. You can't argue with Jesus, because everyone is healed. Secondly, that Jesus does something that makes him unique. It's not strange to us, but it's unique in that time, is that Jesus goes out of his way to touch people because it's dangerous. In the mindset of the people that is, who are listening, they believed that a person 
who was ill had been sinned, and because they had sinned, God had marked them with sickness. And in their mind, it was God telling them that he was displeased with them. That was the rationale. We obviously know that that's not the case, but at this time in history, everyone believed that that was the case. So when Jesus touches the sick, he is doing a couple of hugely significant things. Firstly, when he touches them, it's not a sign of compassion. He's not being compassionate towards them. Yes, he is full of compassion, but that's not the reason. By touching them, he is displaying his authority for he is touching them to bring transformation. You see, for God, in their thinking, had already cursed them. And here is Jesus doing something, as it were, he can only do if he is God. Are you crazy, Jesus, or are you someone special? You think of the lepers in their minds. Moses and Elisha healed lepers, but neither of them touched them because they knew they weren't supposed to touch lepers because that's not what you did. It was God in Leviticus who said, you do not touch lepers. But I love it in one of the gospels or maybe the more, it says that Jesus stretched out his hand and touched them. Jesus is making sure that we don't think this is some accidental brushing or he just walks past them and they get healed. Jesus is laying his hands forward and says, I am touching you. I want everybody to know that I am touching you and I am healing you and I am not gonna get leprosy and I am not gonna know the displeasure of God. The statement that he is making is absolutely huge. Because if he gets the displeasure of God, is he gonna be struck down? And obviously we know that he doesn't. They are healed and nothing happens to Jesus. In fact, he goes from strength to strength. The minds of the people are being completely messed with. The amazing truth is you're not supposed to touch people, especially lepers, because God has told you not to. Is Jesus undermining God, or is he making a declaration of who he is? Jesus touches those who shouldn't be touched. And the message that has been clearly communicated is that the all-powerful arm of God in the Old Testament is now being seen in the all-embracing arms, all-embracing arms of Jesus in the new the fact that he touched people and they were healed and he didn't get sick and he wasn't struck down was a huge pointer to his status. You see, when Jesus touches people, he not only heals them and he gets them sorted, he means that it also means that they can start to enjoy being part of life and community again. He does the exactly the same for us. He puts our lives back together and he puts us in community. The gospel is the same today as it was. And Jesus is declaring this message. And this is how it was in first century Palestine. Jesus had worked you over, or I should say God had worked you over in their minds because you have sinned and there was this curse upon you. God had clearly rejected you. Take the, take the story of the 10 lepers. See, the reason that they stood at a distance shouting unclean was not because, and sometimes we have this in our mind, it was not because they didn't want you to get leprosy. 
That may have been part of it. But the main reason that they kept at a distance and shouted unclean was they were so concerned that the sin that had caused them to have leprosy would be communicated onto you. And they wanted you to stay away because they knew in their thinking that they had been cursed by God and they didn't want you to suffer the same. They wore clothes that were tattered and torn, not because they were poor, but because there was a sign of repenting, constantly thinking that they had done something wrong. So when Jesus touches them, he is making an powerful, incredibly powerful statement, which not simply heals them, but he deals with the myth around their thinking and the way they have lived. And he centralizes them back into community. Friends, truly, only God could have done that to these listeners. You know, one of my favorite stories in regards to miracles and the wonder of Jesus is, again, only told by Mark. And it's the story of the man who has a speech impediment and he is deaf and Jesus heals him. You know, of course he does. He heals everybody. This is not the point of the story at all. There is a lot more to this healing. This healing, if we only see the healing, the healing is just, oh, just another one. Oh gosh, we've had, how many have we had before? Just take another one. You see, Jesus heals the man with a speech impediment. He is not dumb, but he has a stammer. And Mark uses an incredibly rare word that is a Greek word, and it's only used once in the New Testament. And this is it, it's a Greek word, it's called mogialos. Nowhere else is it found, hardly ever found in Greek literature, but this is the word, nowhere else. It is only found once in the Old Testament, and it's found in Isaiah 35, verses five and six. Five and six. A coincidence or not? Isaiah 35, verse four says that God will come and he will do these things. Then the eyes of the blind shall be open and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Mogialos, for waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. I don't think it's a coincidence. I think that Mark uses it absolutely deliberately. This is talking about a time when God will come himself and he will do incredible things. When God himself will come and he will do these miracles. Mark is using this absolutely deliberately to depict that Jesus is the God who Isaiah wrote about. Isaiah, probably, to me, the greatest Old Testament prophet. If you can gauge them, I think he's number one. Something awesome about his writings. And here Mark is saying, you know, our greatest Old Testament prophet prophesied that a day would come when God himself would come and do these things, and he would do all those things that you dreamt of. And Mark is saying that when Jesus delivered this man from a stammer, that now Jesus was the fulfillment of that prophecy. Well, pretty incredible picture that these people are, are painting. And so what does that impact us today? What does that mean for us today? Well, let's go back to the first century. One of the biggest issues that first century people faced was insecurity. Theirs was a life of real fear. In the ancient world, most people would have lived to most 35 years of age. That would have probably been the lifespan. And, in the, and up until 35, life was brutish, it was hellish, and it was nasty. 
Life was horrible. They had very little clue about the afterlife. Actually, the Jews knew very little about the afterlife. If you read the Old Testament, it doesn't speak about much about the afterlife. So, these people were incredibly insecure. They were incredibly fearful. Insecurity permeates society and is starting to pervade the lives of the Christians because they know that things are getting worse and persecution is coming. So the New Testament writers, especially Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they start to tell the people about who Jesus is. Yes, you know him as your savior. You know him as somebody who, some, some of you walked with him. You know that he's forgiven your sins, but we want to tell you about a Jesus who whilst being man is also totally, totally God. That when he did all those things when they were amongst us, he wasn't just a wonder worker. It was pointing to an almighty God of the Old Testament that has now come and visited us. And that the Jesus that you worship is God Almighty. He is creator. And he is Yahweh. So he start, they start to write into this, into their, into their lives, that there is hope in the midst of fear. There is hope in the midst of security. And what Luke does is that he tells a little story at the end of Acts. And he asks the question, is Paul going to achieve what God had asked him? In Acts chapter 24, uh, 23, I should say, verse 11, Paul has a vision of the Lord. It says that the Lord came to him and told him, you are to testify in Rome. So Jesus is saying to Paul, I want you to go from Jerusalem to Rome, and I will make sure that you get there. And that's in Acts 23. And then in Acts 27 and 28, to conclude the book, Paul goes on this mission. And Luke, quite laboriously, Luke gives us a lot of detail. Luke goes into a lot of, I, I think, some, just a lot of effort to tell us that he gets there, that he goes across the Mediterranean Sea and he gets to Rome. Will he get there? Will he manage to do it? The huge implications are clear. And first of all, I want to challenge our thoughts of the sea. You see, if you're a first century Christian or first century person, you didn't like the sea. You know, when we think of the sea today and when we think of how wonderful it is, we think of cruises, we think of ocean liners, we think of luxury yachts, we think perhaps we don't think of the America's Cup, but we think of the Navy. And we think, you know, I mean, we're pretty safe and secure in our waters, but that wasn't the case if you were a first century person. The Mediterranean, for biblical readers, was fearful, and in general, they were, were land lovers. They would do some inland fishing, they would do some inshore fishing, but they never went out very deep. So the only way that they would go from Palestine would be to track the coast. They would probably go from Haifa, they'd go across to one of the islands, maybe Crete or Malta, then they would come down into the soft underbelly of Europe, maybe into Turkey, and they would track the coast all the way up, Croatia, and come down, and they would get to Rome. They wouldn't take the direct route which we would, we would take today. They did not like the water. And then Luke tells us the story of what happens. There is the unwise advice of the captain. There is the danger of shipwreck, and there will be a shipwreck. When he gets to the island, a snake bites him, and the whole journey is fraught with dangers that to any other man would have been too, excuse me, too dangerous and would have stopped him. But Paul gets from Jerusalem to Rome, just like Jesus had planned. And so for us, all good. Absolutely all good. 
Musicians, come and join me, please. However, we need to look back to the times of Jesus. You see, in the ancient world, they did not have many books. They had a few, and they were very important to them. And two of the most famous books at that time, one was Homer's Odyssey, and the other one was entitled The Aeneid, authored by Virgil. And Virgil had written this 20 years before Jesus was born. And people used these books, as I said, to learn to read. They were really important because they taught them how to be good people. They taught them how to be good citizens. They taught them the stories of history. They taught them how to live with a destiny in their life. And these two books were crucial to the people of the day. If you do a Google search, even today, of the top 50 most influential books that have been written, ever written, these two books will be shown in the top 50. Depending on which ones you go, I'm on three different lists. The first three I came to, and both these two books were there. These were the books of the day. We do not have any comparison. You see, but these books are about people who go on a journey. These books are about people who do incredibly heroic journeys, and they have to cross the sea. Homer, literally his odyssey, takes him everywhere. The Aeneid, which Virgil wrote, talks about a man crossing the Greek Sea and crossing the Mediterranean, and they get to where their destination is. And these books are full of heroes, they're full of challenges, they are full of wonderful stories that even today in the 21st century are well worth reading. Actually, talking to one of our staff members last week, and she said that she had to read Homer's Odyssey for her course which has just graduated. But they told about heroes who got across the sea and who did absolutely wonderful things. They're fiction. Of course they are. But nevertheless, they were incredibly important to the society. So Luke tells them a story about a man, about a man called Paul, who is told by Jesus in a dream that he has to go across the sea. And he tells him that he wants him to go and testify in Jerusalem. And so Luke takes two chapters to tell a story about how Jesus, having told Paul to go to Jerusalem, makes sure sure that he gets there. And we have all those stories about why all those things happen. You know, I mean, if I'd been writing it, I would have said he'd gone straight, He went from Jerusalem, he went to Rome, had a few troubles on the way, but he got there. But he tells him all this detail. And it's not so much for us, but it's for the reader. Because they are thinking, goodness me, our Jesus has told Paul to go there, and he gets there safely. They know that Homer's Odyssey and the Aeneid are books of fiction, but they know the context of what is being said to them. The point is that Paul went from Jerusalem and whilst it looked perilous, whilst it looked hopeless, whilst it looked as if he died, he would die, he got there. And the last word in the book of Acts is a, is a Greek word, obviously, and it's called akolitos, and it means unhindered. And so Luke says to the reader, you know, You have your great heroes, they are fiction. You have your great heroes who cross the sea, who do all these incredible things. Let me tell you about Paul's last journey, (laughs) how our Jesus told him to go. He went through all the difficulties that he did, 
but he still got there. He was saying, the ascension does not signify an absent Jesus, for on the contrary, Jesus is with us today. So let's finish and see where our hope is. Don't think that Jesus was asked by God to come to earth and die. He came as God. He didn't volunteer on behalf of the Godhead to take a hit so that someone had to do it. So I'm going, gosh, flip, I better go and do it. He came as God. Not for one second do I think that he doubted that he ever wanted to come. He knew the hellishness of what is before him on Calvary, but he still came. When Jesus did, he came so, he came as the presentation of God himself so that we could marvel at his grandeur and at who he is. But friends, that ultimately he will be with us at our side and that he will stick closer than a brother, that he will never leave us. And even if you find yourself in the most difficult situation that you can totally imagine, like crossing the sea, which to us is not, you know your Jesus is gonna be with you. And the story that these New Testament writers are telling us are of an incredible hope that we have in Jesus, that whilst he was man, he was yet God. But not only that, can we trust him, but also we need to be motivated to be transformed into his image. Friends, because we serve a savior who not only is a friend, who is a brother, who is a companion, but he is someone who is worthy of being obeyed and followed and worshiped and adored and whatever he tells us we need to believe and we need to do because he is our hope. In the first century Palestine, they were hearing of the awesomeness of who Jesus is and as this small truth of Jesus drops into our imagination, let us realize afresh that he is our hope. My hope is based on nothing else than Jesus Christ, the hymn writer tells us. And friends, that in the mundane, boring, hard stuff of life, Jesus is not absent, for he is with us. Thank you. Thanks for listening. We hope it was an encouragement to you. Again, Check out gatewaychurch.org.nz to find out what's going on within our church.